In-depth journalism in the Memphis community, The Daily Memphian is of Memphis, not just in Memphis, and seeks to tell the stories of this city. TheDailyMemphian.com. Truth in place. This is the Daily Memphian Politics Podcast. I'm Bill Drees. Our main event is the author of Bleeding Out, the book newly elected and returning Memphis City Council members are giving a look as they think deeper about how police battle violent crime. Top of the podcast added to the November 2020 ballot by the Memphis City Council, a referendum that would change the city charter, if approved by voters, to permit the city to hire police officers and firefighters who live in one of the counties adjoining Shelby County or within a 50-mile radius of the city. Some important details added to this that would suspend the broader residency rules once the department reaches 2,400. The police force is currently at 2,100. So the outgoing council gets it on the ballot after some debate before the vote from some on the council who wanted to take this up in the new term with a review of long-term police strategies. Some opponents of the delay on the council suggesting if there was a delay, citizens should mount a petition drive to get it on the ballot, similar to the drive by the police and fire unions to get a half-cent sales tax hike on the ballot this past October to fund a restoration of police and fire benefits. Also at the council, the body of 13 takes back its rejection of a solid waste fee hike two weeks earlier and approves it, although several council members didn't care for Mayor Jim Strickland's talk of laying off 199 sanitation workers and cutting garbage service if the rejection stood. Same meeting and approval of increases over three years in water and gas rates proposed by the Memphis Light, Gas, and Water Board, but a rejection of the electric rate increase, the largest of the three. The new council will take that up, with the MLGW board likely coming back with a new electric rate proposal in 2020. Also learning as we tape today from incoming council chairwoman Patrice Robinson that the Light, Gas, and Water Board has authorized its CEO, J.T. Young, to negotiate with the council on whatever the compromise winds up being. The new council will take that up, as we said, in the new year. This is the third time in as many years the council has rejected multi-year rate hike packages across electric, gas, and water to fund a large infrastructure renovation program spanning the next five years. Operation Relentless Pursuit comes to town in January, what has been described by the Justice Department as a surge of federal law enforcement in seven American cities, including Memphis, to combat violent crime. Democratic presidential contender and former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg at the Central Library this past week for his first campaign appearance in advance of the March 3rd Super Tuesday presidential primary in Tennessee and 13 other states. Bloomberg telling a standing room only crowd of 150 that he is the only candidate who can beat President Donald Trump in the November general election. He also slammed Democratic rivals who back a Medicare for all health care reform proposal. Meanwhile, the campaigns of rival Democrats Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, each saying they are about to set up shop in the state with state directors for their respective efforts in the new year. 
Two years ago this past week, Confederate monuments came down in two parks, Memphis Park and Health Science Park, as they were sold by the city to the private nonprofit Memphis Green Space. This past week, the city announced the three major monuments in those parks, not counting historical markers and placards, are to be turned over to the descendants of those honored by the monuments or to the sons of Confederate veterans for their use outside of Memphis and Shelby County. The three monuments involved in this are a bust of Confederate Captain Harvey Mathis, a statue of Confederacy President Jefferson Davis, and the equestrian statue of Confederate General, slave trader, and Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard Nathan Bedford Forrest. In Nashville, our Sam Stockard reports Governor Bill Lee will continue a refugee resettlement plan. Three years ago, the state went to court over that program, contending it crossed the line between federal and state governments. Lee says the lawsuit was the right decision, but that in the intervening years, namely during the Trump administration, that the federal government has increased the vetting of those refugees. Trump also issued an executive order, leaving it up to states to decide on accepting refugees. Shelby County Mayor Lee Harris sending a letter to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo saying Shelby County has, quote, a moral obligation to help those in need. The Memphis Zoo parking plan on pause. The city wants to explore a 350-space parking deck of a single story off Prentice Place, the zoo entrance off McLean. That, instead of relying on a reconfiguration and expansion of the zoo's surface parking lot to come up with the 415 new spaces the zoo and the Overton Park Conservancy agreed to. The pause comes just before the original reconfiguration plan was to start taking down almost 200 trees on the northern and western fringes of the Overton Park Greens Ward. The Zoo and Conservancy raised $3 million in private money to pay the tab for the project. One critical test of a parking deck will be whether it can fit that dollar amount. We're joined now by Thomas Apt, the author of Bleeding Out and a Senior Research Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Um, in 2011, during his time in the Justice Department's Office of Justice Programs, he came to Memphis, among other cities, to meet with local leaders. The topic here was youth violence prevention. As we mentioned at the top of the podcast, a different Justice Department just this week announced that Memphis is one of seven cities that will see what is described as a surge starting in January with an increased presence by federal law enforcement and federal funding for more police officers. Eight years ago, Memphis was one of six cities the Justice Department picked for its Youth Violence Prevention Initiative. Before we get into the book's message, Thomas, let's start there. What do you think of the surge, and and did the Youth Violence Initiative, uh, Youth Violence Prevention Initiative here, um, do what it was supposed to do? Sure. In terms of the Youth Violence Initiative, uh, it was called the National Forum on Youth Violence Prevention. The goal was to help cities get a little bit better and a little bit smarter about how they approach the issue of youth violence. And an independent ses- assessment before, uh, performed by John Jay University suggested that we did just that. It's important to remember that that initiative, while quite positive, was very modest and it involved uh mostly training and technical assistance. And so while I believe that the uh, effort was a success and that Memphis benefited from, uh, from that uh, effort, it's unlikely that that effort alone would have turned things around. 
Um, and in many ways, you're seeing the exact opposite approach uh, now from the uh, from the Trump administration, a very different administration. Uh, what you're seeing here is rather than a reference, uh, rather than an emphasis on multidisciplinary partnerships and balanced approaches and uh, uh, paying attention to evidence and data, you're seeing a pretty single-minded emphasis on sort of tough-on-crime enforcement. And while enforcement is an important part of any youth violence or urban violence uh, approach, it's not the only thing you need. And so I think there are some questions about whether a surge alone is going to have a significant or perhaps more important sustainable impact. All right. Um, so, so as you may know, uh, City Council Member-elect Dr. Jeff Warren has has found your book and has been passing out copies of it to fellow council members with the idea that in their new term of office starting next month, that they will be dealing and talking about the issue of the city's historic problem uh, with violent crime here. And, and I want to kind of open the discussion about about what you advocate with with a quote from the book that I, I think is really key to this. Uh, you write that high rates of violent crime are the structural linchpin of urban poverty, trapping poor people in neighborhoods of concentrated disadvantage. Violence is not simply a manifestation of poverty. It is a force that perpetuates poverty as well. Poverty might precede violence, but reducing poverty requires working backward, beginning with the violence we experience today. So, so much of the discussion we, we hear in Memphis today and in past discussions uh, about this ha- has been about that that balance violence and and poverty um, so violent crime and poverty goes away or solves it it, it itself uh, with with violent crime going going first the solution to that correct yeah, I think that uh, there's a conventional wisdom uh, about violence, which is that uh, violence is the inevitable consequence of root causes like poverty um, and inequality. Uh, but in fact, the most rigorous social science suggests that uh, a very common sense idea, which is if you want to reduce violence, you actually have to directly focus on that violence itself. And what I argue in the book is that if you can get excessively high rates of violence under control. It'll make everything you do in Memphis in terms of improving economic and social equality easier. It'll make it easier to improve educational outcomes, health outcomes, economic and commercial development outcomes. Um, uh, On just some other basic points in in the discussion, this this discussion takes takes many forms and and a lot of the same points get hit over and over again. Um, Are there too many guns out there? In other words, if we have fewer guns, does that automatically solve our problem with violence? Well, uh, that's a difficult question because the answer is yes and no. Uh, there is a general connection uh, to the uh, the number of guns that are in, ge- in general circula- circulation and the number of violent crimes that are uh, uh, that are committed with guns. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge that the overwhelming majority of guns and uh, and gun or- owners are lawful and will never be used unlawfully. 
So while I uh, am a proponent of reasonable restrictions on uh, gun ownership and and, uh, possession, that's not the entire answer. And in fact, what you really need to do to address urban violence is to address the guns, the particular guns that are most likely to be used uh, uh, in the commission of an urban crime. Those guns overwhelmingly are already possessed illegally. And there's currently a federal focus, as you may know, to go after felons who have guns. We've we've seen a lot of those cases in our federal district court here, but you're advocating something that, that that's very different. This is not felons with guns. This is where the guns are, are located. And if you go to the areas where there are crime hotspots, then you're going to find a lot of guns that are not possessed legally. I think that's right. And I think there's a relation there. I, I, but I think you need to be more specific. It's not, uh, I don't think it's targeted enough to say we're going after all felons uh, with guns, just like I think it's not targeted enough to say we're going to go after uh, all guns that are illegally possessed. I think the, thing, the key here is identifying, and this is true in every city, the, uh, the small number of people, places, and behaviors that are driving your uh, problem and your violence problem in Memphis. And then slowly making sure that all of your strategies, both enforcement, intervention, and prevention, are actually focused on those people and places. We have to get away from these generalities, talking about all guns or no guns or it's all poor people or no poor people. We have to get focused on the specifics. And, and you also make a point in the book, uh, that same point about gangs, that, that, that it's not gang culture, it's when gangs engage in violence. I think that that's right. I think that there's a lot of loose talk about gangs, and a lot of that talk obscures why we became concerned with gangs in the first uh, place. And the reason we were concerned with gangs is because of the violence. And so what we really need to do is target the violence, not people who may or may not call themselves gangs. So if there is a gang that is engaging in violence, in particular engaging uh, gang members that are uh, uh, engaging in violence, those are the people to focus on. But the idea of focusing on gangs generally is just not specific enough. Mm-hmm. It's very important to approach this, uh, approach urban violence with a scalpel, not a sledgehammer. So, so what, what's your impression of gang injunctions or, or what have been called no gang zones, which, which we've had several of over the last few years? Well, I don't have a personal impression of them, but I'm familiar with the evidence. And the evidence is that they don't work very well. And the reason is because they're too overbroad. You know, despite decades of investment, uh, we don't really have a good idea of how many gangs there are in the United States, how many gang members there are, what works to prevent gang membership or gang crime. At the end of the day, we need to focus less on gangs, and we just have to worry about the darn violence. All right. Um, how, how long does your approach take, do you think, to, to see some real results? Because you've been very precise in this. You've, you've, you've put some real numbers to, to, to what could happen with this, in, including a realistic time frame for this. 
Yes, I think it's important to uh, to be uh, candid and transparent with the pub- public about what uh, violence uh, programs can and cannot do. So, for instance, in my plan, uh, which anticipates a 50% reduction in violent crime and homicides, actually, to be exact, over eight years, the plan anticipates that there will be no reduction in homicide over the first year because it's going to take at least a year to get that uh, strategy into place. And people need to understand that high-quality interventions and high-quality programs take a little bit of time to put together. Mm-hmm. And and Mayor A.C. Wharton put put a lot of emphasis on 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 that very point uh, about intervention after a shooting or other violent crime, and after the cops who investigate the crime have ha- have left the scene. In essence, talking to the person who may have been the target of the shooting, uh, or or who may be related to the person who was targeted in the shooting to prevent them from retaliating. Um, how labor intensive is it to to undertake something like that? Well, there's an interesting rub when it comes to evidence informed uh, community driven violence reduction. The good news is that it doesn't cost a lot of money in in absolute sense, and it doesn't uh, require new legislation, and it doesn't require massive massive institutional reform. The bad news is that it does require a new, dramatically different way of thinking and working. And so in order to get the benefits of these programs, you really have to approach urban violence in a very different way. All right. Uh, There's been another part of our discussion about violent crime here in Memphis just just recently, and it involves the size of the police force. Mayor Jim Strickland here advocating and a voting majority on the city council supporting that the answer to violent crime is a larger police force. Our police force is now at 2,100 with a goal of 2,300 by the end of 2020, and beyond that, a goal of perhaps 2,400 to 2,600, depending on who you talk to. The rallying cry with that is that more police mean means less crime. Does it? Well, I don't think it's quite so simple. Uh, I'd have to know much more before opining about what the appropriate size of the Memphis Police Department is. But I think it's two things. Uh, every police department needs the right amount of police officers, and then they need to deploy their officers in the right way. So it's not so simple to just say you need a certain amount of officers. It's also about, are you deploying them in a way that's efficient and effective? And so it's hard to say what the perfect number of police officers is in Memphis. Um, Back to the Justice Department for for a second. When there are these philosophical shifts at at justice, because we, we elect a president every four years, what is the effect on, on local law enforcement where the rubber meets the road, so, so to speak, no matter what the, the, the transition is to? Well, I think it's difficult. And unfortunately, there's not work. I, I wish there was more continuity across administrations. And I wish there was more of a consensus about what works and what doesn't. And in fact, that's part of the reason that I wrote Bleeding Out was to give the public the benefit of the evidence around uh, around urban violence, which I view as not particularly progressive or particularly conservative. Evidence-informed violence reduction actually doesn't really conform to the talking points of either Republicans or Democrats. It's about finding 
and a, a new sort of middle middle of the road evidence informed data driven approach to this issue. Mm-hmm. And, and there is a sense of urgency in this. In, in the book, you, you write a lot about the need to to fulfill the basic mission of any government, local, state, or federal, and that is to to protect citizens. So it's not like you're saying, well, you've got to wait all this time and, and, and police can't do anything during during that interim period. You, you talk about the urgency of police doing data-driven policing and hitting hot spots, what, what the program that here has been called Blue Crush. You, you say that that's important as well. I do believe that hotspots policing is an important component of violence reduction, but it has to be done right. It has to be done in a targeted way. It has to be complemented with programs that give people things to say yes to, as well as something to say no to. And it has to be done in a way that is perceived as fair and legitimate by those impacted communities. If people feel that the, uh, that the only response to violence in their community is more police and no investment, that's going to be hard to sell as a legitimate approach to urban violence reduction. And so as I say in the book, urban violence has to be addressed with both carrot and stick. It has to be addressed with police, but also with prevention. So, so what is a relevant definition by your standards of community policing then? Well, I believe uh, that community policing really means partnership between police and communities. And I think that we are sort of waiting for some broad reconciliation, uh, both in Memphis and around the, uh, around the nation, on this issue uh, of, of policing. But I don't think we should wait. I think we just need to get to work uh, in, in and around the most dangerous areas of the city. And so instead of creating massive partnerships, I think we need to create micro-partnerships, uh, partnerships between police in a particular precinct and residents in a particular housing project, for instance, and including the surrounding business owners. Let's start small and build from there. So, so in other words, in, in, instead of a long, drawn-out process here that maps out the entire city, the cops in one precinct start going to this particular subdivision and start talking to people. Well, I do think you need a, uh, a, a citywide plan to guide your, guide your actions. I wouldn't say we don't need any plan, mm-hmm. but I think that the idea, but I don't think you need to wait for some sort of magical conciliation moment to begin. I think you need to get to work right away. And what I have seen, I have seen former gang members and police officers, uh, you know, sitting at the same, tel- sitting at the same table working together. Uh, but it took time, and those uh, those relationships built over time. And what they didn't do is they didn't wait until they uh, appreciated and liked and respected each other to work on the issue of violence. They got to work, and they learned to trust each other along the way. All right. A, a final point, another issue we hear so much today. Do you think police are, are hesitant to do their jobs, the beat cops, the cops on patrol, because of, of public sentiment that, that – can at times question their methods. Um, I have heard I have heard that said many times. I don't think the evidence is clear as to whether there is this uh, hesitation or withdrawal effect. But I do know that we need to uh, hold police fully accountable uh, if they are corrupt or if they are brutal. 
But at the same time, it's not helpful to demonize police. And it's important to recognize that most police are committed to public service and should be respected as such. All right. The book is Bleeding Out, The Devastating Consequences of Urban Violence and a Bold New Plan for Peace in the Streets. The author and our guest is Thomas Apt, Senior Research Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. A reporter's roundtable this week on Behind the Headlines on WKNO Channel 10. Our guests are Laura Faith Cabetta of Chalkbeat, Toby Sells of the Memphis Flyer, and Karanja Ajanaku of the new Tri-State Defender. You can also hear the program on the Behind the Headlines podcast. Subscribe to The Daily Memphian at dailymemphian.com. You can subscribe to this podcast and our other podcast at Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can find us on Twitter at BDreesDM and at Daily Memphian. I'm Bill Drees. The Daily Memphian Politics Podcast is produced by Natalie Van Gundy. In-depth journalism in the Memphis community, the Daily Memphian is of Memphis, not just in Memphis, and seeks to tell the stories of this city. TheDailyMemphian.com. Truth in place.